0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. From a macro level, I will zoom out and say that every company that pays a ransom is incentivizing that industry. Hello,
1: everyone, and welcome to the Cyberwire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and the criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the Cyberwire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We've got some good stories to share this week, and later in the show, we welcome back Curtis Minder from GroupSense. We're going to be talking about the burgeoning ransomware negotiation industry. All right, well, let's uh, start things off here with some stories. Joe, why don't you uh, kick it off for us?
2: Dave, my story comes from ZDNet. Remember when it used to be Ziff Davis? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I do. (laughs) Yes, I do. So ZDNet is reporting on a new HP bromium study that came out in October that is reporting a 1,200% increase in Emotet detections, and that's Hmm. over over the previous quarter, from July to September. Now, what is this is I know we're not really a uh, technical podcast here. We're a social engineering podcast. But Immotet is a piece of software, malicious software, malware, that began life as a banking Trojan. Mm. And it, a Trojan is a Trojan horse. It's a piece of software that does something you don't think it's going to do. It's actually a program. It's not like a virus that will attach itself to other pieces of code. And there's all kinds of different malware definitions that I'm not going to get into, but it's actually a program on your computer that provides all kinds of features. And originally it was used for getting people's banking credentials, like your username and password for a banking account. It would Mm -hmm. sit there and wait until you went to uh, your banking website, and then when it saw your credentials being entered, it would send those off to whoever was operating the botnet. But what's going on now is there is this huge increase, and these things are not really doing anything. They're just getting into the system and sitting there.
1: Hmm. Biding their time.
2: Biding their time. And what HP and Bromium are speculating on here is that this is the beginning of some kind of marketing campaign for these things they're going to sell whoever's behind this is going to sell these imitet infected botnets th- these this collection of machines because one of the things that that they get when they have imitate on the machine is they essentially get a backdoor into whatever network it is and that hmm. could be really really valuable now some of these are probably just sitting there on somebody's home computer which is possible as well but some of them are sitting on business networks which right. would be more valuable Because now if, if I have a backdoor into someone's business network, I can get in there and install ransomware or steal data or do whatever it is I want or further compromise things. The social engineering angle is how Imitat often gains access to these networks, and they usually gain access via phishing. And the people who are behind this campaign have been seen to use thread hijacking. And we've talked about this before. Hmm. They get into someone's email account, the business email compromise, and instead of injecting themselves into a conversation and saying, hey, send the money here, it's a lot easier to say, hey, uh, here's a document for you. And it's a malicious document, right?
1: But they take advantage of an existing email thread. Exactly.
2: That's why it's called thread hijacking. There's an existing thread and they're sending something back and forth. And the reason I say it's easier is because you don't have to wait for somebody to be talking about finances. You can just say, oh, by the way, here's something else. You can inject this into the conversation a lot easier than you can waiting for the discussion of financial stuff to come up.
1: Right. Trust has already been established. Yes. Because the origin of the thread was legitimate.
2: Right. And the email is probably the proper email. This is right. a um a common tactic. We see phishing attacks all the time to gain access to your cloud email account, like your Office three sixty five, or I guess it's Microsoft three sixty five now, right? That's what they're calling it these days. The reason they're doing that is because that's a very effective way of getting inside an organization. Because let's say you and I are both talking on cyberwire addresses, and I send you an email that says, "Hey Dave, check out this story for the next week's podcast," and it's a malicious link with a drive-by download. Right. Right. Yeah. That's how that
1: works. My initial impulse would be to trust that link because it was coming from you. Exactly. Uh, in the in a way that yeah, exactly. It, it all it all looks legit. No reason to think otherwise.
2: Yeah, the fishing lures are being written in languages like French, German, Greek, Hindi, Italian, Japanese, Spanish and Vietnamese. So these guys are casting a very broad net here.
1: Yeah, it's interesting how they're um you know they they seem to be in this infrastructure building stage where right. they're, they're they're very methodical about this, you know, building up the botnet building up an inventory that they can then turn around and sell either access to those machines, to the botnet itself, to do the types of things that botnets do, or as you say, uh, just access to individual networks, saying, hey, who'd like to buy access to this company's network? You know, the bidding starts here.
2: Right. Yep. That's exactly what's going on.
1: That's fascinating. Mm, Interesting story. All right, well, I've actually got a two for this week. Uh, rather right. than having uh, one big story, I've got two shorter ones that I thought didn't rise to, to be enough content to stand on our own. But in between the two of them, I think it makes for some interesting uh, conversation, uh, as as happens sometimes here. The first one is about some bad guys who are using uh, an interesting image manipulation technique to evade detection. So these folks are going after Office 365 accounts. Uh, It's a phishing campaign. And, you know, very often uh, the way that they do this is they will redirect you to a landing page, a login page that is imitating the legitimate login page for something like Office 365. Right. And it looks exactly like the actual page. Mm -hmm. You know, it's easy to do because online, the code is right there to copy and paste, right? That's exactly (laughs) right.
2: They have to send you the code for the web page because that's how the web works.
1: Right. So evidently, one of the ways that folks are trying to detect this sort of thing is they're using image recognition software, to see when someone's using the same background image that, for example, Microsoft uses in their login page. Right. So, you know, they have these pretty, these pastoral images, these pretty, you know, calming, beautiful landscapes and things like that. We're all familiar with them, but they're easy to detect. Image recognition software has no trouble finding this. So what the bad guys have done is they use an inverted version of that image. So if you imagine, um, you know, like a film negative right? right. Every, everything is everything's inverted. The luminance is inverted. The colors are inverted. So it's an inverted version of the image. Well, they use that and then they use the CSS, the cascading style sheets, which allow you to invert an image ah. back again, <laughs>
2: right? That's so clever. That's, it is clever. That's clever. They're, they're inverting it twice, which takes it back to the original look and feel, right? Yep. So you yeah. the user are sitting there looking at the what looks like the exact same image but right. the computer goes nope that's not the that's not the same image Microsoft uses. Right. Exactly.
1: Funny it seems to be the exact opposite of the of the image Microsoft <laughs> <Right>. uses. <laughs> that's a very so, clever trick. It is clever and I think it's just another step in the cat and mouse game here. I suspect you'll probably start to see image recognition systems that routinely look for an inverse. You know, you'll have a, uh, I don't know, a search for inverted version button option, which is probably slower, but wouldn't be hard to do because inverting an image is a pretty easy, straightforward kind of thing to do, you know. Yeah, you just flip um, the numbers around. Yeah, it's probably not even that, uh, you know, mathematically expensive to do, you know, right. in terms of processing power. So, But I just thought it was a, a clever thing. I, I don't know that there's anything, you know, users can really do on their end to protect against themselves. It's more just, um, you know, not getting on these pages to begin with to, right. to log yeah, on. Right, the this
2: still all cl- boils down to don't click the link.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. But uh, I thought it was worth mentioning just as a clever way that the bad guys are getting around some of the detection systems that are out there. That is interesting. Yeah. The other one is just a a real quickie here. You know, as we are coming up uh, past uh, the election here in the U.S., the bad guys are using that to glom on with their scams Uh, I saw several folks share images where uh, the old chestnut of of Elon Musk giving away (laughs) Bitcoin. (laughs) Right. Uh, For some reason, it never gets old because I guess it works. Everybody knows uh, Elon Musk is a rich guy. So if there's anybody who's going to give away free Bitcoin, it would be... Him. So they're glomming on to some of the election things. I've seen some things where, um, you know, they reply to a a tweet, for example, that President Trump will put out. What's interesting, too, is the wording here. So this this claims to be from Elon Musk. Of course, it's not the the actual at username on Twitter has nothing to do with Elon Musk.
2: Right. Looks Um, like they've compromised a a verified account on Twitter, though, because they got the blue check mark, But it's not Elon Musk's account. They've changed the username to Elon Musk or the display name,
1: rather. Correct. And what's interesting here is the wording. It says, it's all but decided now. In other words, it's over. To celebrate, we are giving to the people. Now, it's referring to the election because it's replying to something that that uh, President Trump tweeted about, about the election, about mail-in ballots and so on and so forth. Right. But what's interesting is that the wording here is specifically noncommittal. I mean, you could be on either side, right, and this will resonate with you. It's right. all but decided by now. In other words, it's over. Either side could, right? Yeah, either side this goes, was, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. This was released, you know, at a time when the election had not yet been settled. Lots of things were up in the air. Votes are still being counted. You know, both sides are, are rooting for their team and, and so on and so forth. And so I, it just struck me as a clever way to word this to maximize the impact regardless of who reads it.
2: Yeah, I agree 100%. That is definitely playing on your optimism bias.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, And it has a link that goes to, you know, a phony website and then a a link to a YouTube video as well. It seems like these folks uh, take advantage of YouTube's uh, inability to police this stuff effectively. And that's where they'll put uh, more information to try to hook people on these scams as well. Yep. uh, Another quickie, just keep your eyes out for that. You know, remind your your loved ones that uh, whenever there's something happening, something topical that people are emotional about, and boy, an election will count for that. (laughs) There's going to be people out there trying to uh, attach their scams to it. So just be mindful of that. All right, well, those are my stories. Uh, Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Mm -hmm.
2: Our catch of the day comes from a listener named John, and he says, we have recently seen an interesting wave of email-based vishing attacks, such as the ones below, and he sends along two emails. And there's not really a lot to read here, but the first one comes from McAfee. It looks like it comes from McAfee and says McAfee invoice. And it looks like an invoice for LifeSafe charging you $491. And underneath it says T&C, like terms and conditions. Why don't you read the T&Cs,
1: Dave? All right. Well, uh, it goes like this. It says, in the event that you might want to proceed with the administrations, if you don't mind, disregard the invoice. In the event that you wish to drop it and go for an inversion of the cash, kindly call us. The chargers will think about your ledger in next 24 to 48 hours. McAfee support team. And then they have hmm. a contact number. This is
2: <laughs> terrible English. I, I, You have to read this because I am incapable of reading bad copy. Uh, the next one is a fake Amazon invoice. And it says, hello, user. Thank you for shopping with us. We'll send a confirmation when your item ships. And then it's a bill for $719.24. Hmm. And interesting, there's no item on this. It just says we're charging you $719.24. And then it says, uh, hope to see you again soon, customer support help desk, and has an 800 number. So John continues, he says, the interesting thing is that there is no working links in either of these emails. In both cases, they use a decently sized charge to inspire a sense of urgency, which is a good observation. The only means of contact to resolve this issue is a phone number. Have you ever tried to get a phone number from Amazon? <laughs> they do not exist. Right, they don't. <laughs> Actually, Amazon will call you. It's a if, but you have to hunt for that that feature. You really do. Right. It's, it's miserable. The right, it's like playing case. a
1: game of Where's Waldo. Right, exactly. To find Amazon it, a phone number
2: for Amazon. This is interesting. John says, "I called both from a burner number, and in both cases, they wanted me connect, to connect to a web-based remote access tool, ah. the, which you should never do, by the way." Yeah. <laughs> in the McAfee case. They needed to, quote, uninstall the software from my system so I would not be charged. And for the Amazon one, they needed to see me log into my Amazon account so they could, quote, validate I was credited. They were sincere and sounding helpful and believable. I made sure to waste at least half an hour of their time while not actually following any of their instructions.
1: (laughs) Oh, okay. So So I guess I'm seeing the other side of this. So this is not... The the real attempt here is not to get you to actually pay this invoice. No. It's the not. attempt here is to get you to challenge the invoice. To call the number. Right. And right. That, and then they get your your credentials.
2: Yep. They can install software on your machine or, or do anything.
1: Right. And that's the ball game.
2: That's the ball game. That's exactly what the what the end game is here is they're trying to get onto your machine or they're trying to get access to your Amazon account.
1: Right. So how do we uh, advise people to protect themselves against this?
2: Number one, just be aware of what these scams are. That's always the best part. That's why we do this podcast, right? Yeah. Number two, don't call the number. This is a fake invoice. If they're going to charge you on a credit card, you can always dispute the charge on a credit card and say, nope, that's that's a fraudulent charge. But that's never going to happen with these. That, these are just phishing emails that have been sent out. And the Amazon invoice, that says, hello, user. And Amazon will never send you something that says, hello, user. They'll send mm. you something with your name on it. Yeah. Uh, if they send you anything at all. And the same with the McAfee invoice. It says, dear user, and then it has your email address underneath of it.
1: Yeah. I'll say the Amazon one looks pretty convincing. More convincing than the McAfee one. Oh, I mean, it, it, they've definitely far. imitated the style of what you would expect to see in a communication from Amazon. Much more carefully crafted than the McAfee one. That's interesting, yeah. And I guess that that point you made earlier, I mean, never allow anyone to remotely install software on your machine or have remote access to your computer. Right. That is uh, just a big old... A gigantic red flag don't, don't <laughs> ever do right. that
2: so even if you yeah. do call them and, and somebody says we need to in order to resolve a billing issue we need you to connect to a web service at uh no yeah. that that is never necessary to resolve a billing issue
1: all right well uh interesting uh stuff for sure and uh, we thank our listener uh, was it john for uh, sending yes, that in john. to us yep all right yeah much appreciated
2: if you get one send it along so we'll and maybe we'll feature it
1: that's right all right well that is our catch of the day Uh, I recently had the pleasure of uh, speaking to Curtis Minder uh, once again. He's been on our show before. Yes. Uh, He's from an organization called GroupSense. But this time we were talking about uh, the ransomware negotiation industry, which is fascinating that, and I suppose uh, a bit sobering, that we've hit the point now with ransomware where there's a whole industry that's popped up of uh, professionals who are there to help you negotiate with these ransomers. And uh, that's something that Curtis Minder has some expertise on. So uh,
0: here's my conversation with him. You do hear a little bit of we made the right investments in our security stack. I'm surprised this got through. But frankly, it's going to happen. You know, statistically, it's, 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 it's likely to happen to anybody. A lot of the attack vectors are actually pretty easily avoidable. It's usually like account takeover or phishing, right, um, mm. or, is, is usually the point of entry.
1: Well, let's walk through it together. I mean, when when you head into a negotiation, where do things stand and and how do you get started?
0: Well, it depends on the program maturity of the customer. Larger enterprises typically have some kind of incident response plan that may or may not capture what to do in the case of a ransomware incident. A lot of smaller companies, mid-level companies do not have a plan. So it really depends on who you're interacting with. In the case of the larger companies, Our team is usually being pulled in by either the cyber insurance company or the incident response firm that is already on retainer for this customer. And and typically in the room, you're going to have somebody from the business leadership of the company, so a CEO or somebody like that, CFO. But you also have somebody from the technical leadership, typically the CISO. And often, and we do recommend this, you notify law enforcement, so there might be a representative from law enforcement there the cyber insurance, and then an internal and or external counsel um, will all sort of be involved in the decision making about the ransomware and how to negotiate. In smaller companies, it's the IT manager <laughs> and mm. maybe the IT person. And, and so they, they have a little bit harder time uh, sort of uh, navigating this.
1: How do you go about at the outset sort of you know, setting expectations for, for what's going to happen?
0: No, I do this at the outset, but also frequently throughout the process. You, you need to remind the affected companies that if we have decided to do a negotiation, and that's if you don't always do it, but if you decide that you're going to engage the threat actor and do a negotiation, you, you know, it's important and incumbent on me to remind them that we're about to enter into a deal uh, on the honor system with someone who has no honor or accountability, <laughs> mm. right? Uh, so mm-hmm. results may vary. That said, there's been some studies done that show that only about 1% of the time do these guys actually dishonor the contract. Um, th- that number may shift a little bit over time. But generally speaking, these folks are operating a illegitimate and illicit business. But if they didn't honor these, these ransomware payments, then no one would ever pay them. And they know that. And so they often do honor them.
1: So let's walk through it together. I mean, you reach out to the folks who have uh, installed this ransomware, where does the negotiation begin?
0: Well, a lot of folks don't realize this, but what typically happens is you come into the office one day, you find out your, your files on your file server, your, your systems are locked. Uh, on one of those systems, you'll find a note. Uh, it's typically a text file or something like that. Or some of your executives may receive emails. More often, it's the note. What a lot of people are f- surprised to find out is that note does not actually ask for any money. Uh, typically. Mm. The, the notes, they just say, hey, look, we've done this to your system. If you want to recover your files, please reach out. And they and they give you usually two email addresses to communicate with. And they have a primary and a secondary if if no one responds to the primary. And there's a whole reason behind this. It's complicated.
1: <laughs> so you, you reach out and who makes the first offer?
0: I want to be careful about trades and tactics, but generally speaking, yeah. we typically like the threat actor to, to put the first number out. And we also don't assume that we're paying anything. So often, you know, our, our first uh, message to the threat actor is thanks. Can you unlock my files? (laughs) Right. Mm -hmm. So don't, -hmm. don't assume anything. And of course, you know, and 100% of the time, they ask for something in return for that. But but uh, it's it's part of a, a psychological process. I think the important thing to understand is how the tone to set with these folks. One, they're typically operating primarily in a foreign language. So this is a, English is a second or third language for them. So uh, simple communications, but also trying to be cognizant of tone and treating them almost like a business person or uh, in, a, in a business transaction tends to work better than uh, you know, like for example, you you do not need to tell the threat actor that they've done something bad. They know that
1: it does not help your <laughs> cause.
0: It does not help your cause. So so you know, it, the more that you treat them like a peer and or a business associate, and that this is a business transaction, the better off you're going to be.
1: I see. Just shaming them isn't going to get you anywhere.
0: No, no. And we we've actually been pulled into a number of cases where it has gone wrong, and they've they've pulled us in sort of in the middle of the negotiations, and we've seen the transcripts of what taking the wrong approach can do. (laughs) So Mm. I think the message to convey is like, don't try to do this yourself. There is an art form to it. And there's quite a bit that understanding the threat actors themselves uh, brings value to this. And that's, you know, as an intelligence company, that's something we already know. Um, So we bring that to the table.
1: In terms of the threat actors themselves, are they
0: expecting some level of negotiation? Is is that how these things work? Yes, they try to mitigate it. Sometimes they'll, they'll put some sort of bogus threats on the front end to try to tell you not to bother <laughs> to negotiate. Mm, mm-hmm. But but uh, so far, 100% of the time, they've capitulated and negotiated to some level. It also depends on the type of threat actor. So we're talking about kind of two different sorts of operations. There's one that is uh, threat actor groups. Those folks have a playbook. And you're also talking about individual actors who have less of a playbook, but you're probably the only one they're dealing with at a time. So there, there's a different sort of way that you engage.
1: Is there an element of buying time here? In other words, while you're in the midst of negotiating, is, does, does it ever happen that you know there are people behind the scenes sort of running the numbers and saying, okay, is it worth it for us to reinstall everything or restore oh, from yeah. backup or, or those sorts of things?
0: Yeah, and, and usually those decisions are made before we engage the threat actor. You want to have some corporate risk decision made about, whether restoration um, from backups and or sometimes you there there are tools that can help you decrypt these things. You want to explore those things. Simultaneously, you want to be engaging in a in an incident response process, right? So you have people trying to figure out how they got in, are they still in? Can we can we lock them out? Those are all fundamental, I think. But yes, you you're going to do some equation about whether this is a worthwhile endeavor. Sometimes that decision is made for you if you have a cyber insurance company. They've got actuaries that figure this out for you. So they say like, well, it, you know, by our estimation, it costs more for us to help you repair than it does for us to just pay the ransom. It's, it's like, do we total the car or do we buy, <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, or do we right. repair it? It's, it's the same It's the same kind of math, right? And, and so in some cases, the cyber insurance companies will just say, look, just, just pay it.
1: What about this fear that I think a lot of people have that that if they pay the ransom, that's just going to put a bigger target on their back. What's
0: been your experience with that? Do the folks doing this, do they come back for more? So can lightning strike twice, I think is kind of the way to ask it. Yeah, I think so. But I doubt, and I haven't seen any evidence that the same threat actor does it twice. Okay. Um, From a macro level, I will zoom out and say that every company that pays a ransom is incentivizing that industry, uh, which Mm -hmm. I, you know, while I'm here to help folks pay as little as possible and, and and facilitate the transaction. In some cases, I am not a fan of paying these people, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, right. um, and, and if we can find ways to avoid doing that, I'm all for it.
1: Yeah, and I mean we've heard certainly that's the the message from law enforcement or the FBI has said you know in most cases they prefer if you will that you don't pay the ransom for, yeah, well, for exactly it, the reasons you describe.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent of the cases they will tell you not to pay the ransom, but right. they're supposed to say that. Yeah, and, and, yeah. Then, and we saw the release from the Treasury Department and OFAC about potential civil penalties if you're paying ransom or facilitating the payment of ransom to. You know, threat actors who are on the sanctions list or in operating in, in countries that are on the sanctions list. So generally, the government's trying to curb this. My my problem with it is that's one sided approach. If you don't also provide a program for the companies that are affected to solve this problem another way, then it's it's lopsided. Uh, you're probably going to just drive behavior underground. There's a lot for a lot of these companies, it's a it could be a business ending event, right? And so, civil penalties are probably not something they're worried about
1: right you know i i 'm struck by the, the i think the reality that a lot of people are would admit to themselves that they're probably not great negotiators you know i don't consider myself someone who can walk into a car dealership and walk out with the you know the best deal that's ever been gotten <sighs> yeah um, other people feel quite confident in that do you have any sort of guidance for for folks as to Setting that value proposition for themselves in terms of bringing in someone like you. When when is it the best to, in their best interest, to to have someone come in to help from the outside?
0: If you decide, you know, make the business decision that you are going to engage the threat actor, you should one hundred percent of the time bring in a professional to do the negotiation. One of the first things we do when we engage is we let the threat actor know that we are a third party acting on behalf of the affected company that sends a really subtle message that, hey, the company brought in a professional who's probably done this before and maybe even with my own threat actor group on other companies, and that mm-hmm. changes the way that they interact with you. They can tell when your IT guy does it. <laughs> and, and tries. They can tell and it changes it changes the dynamic and, um, and, and certainly, in my opinion, probably in, in some of the evidence I've seen supports this worse uh, monetary outcomes.
1: And I suspect from the threat actor's point of view, when they see a professional negotiator come in, odds are they're going to get something, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we're paying something, uh, you know, nearly 100% of the time. We've gotten lucky a few times and been able to unlock the files as part of the process. And that sort of mitigated the need to pay. But in, in in most cases, we're going to pay something. But these guys are typically shooting a pretty large, you know, shot over the bow as far as the amount that they're asking for. They recognize that they're they're probably going to land somewhere in the 10 or less percent of the original number. It depends on the group and it depends on the affected company. These guys are doing their homework. They, they do know what your revenues are, uh, you know, how many employees you have, that sort of thing. They're, they're getting smart about it. It's a business. Um, but, mm-hmm. but so it, it varies. But t- typically they're, they're expecting you to pay something and, and they recognize it's going to be some fraction of what they've asked.
1: Do you have any sort of general words of wisdom here for folks who uh, have, have have had the fortune of not yet being hit by ransomware? As someone who's on the inside of this process, who's seen it play out many times, what are the best things folks can do to help protect themselves against this?
0: Protect themselves against it is just some really basic security best practices, like I mentioned earlier. Most of these attacks are propagated by account takeover. So that's just password policy, two-factor authentication. Turn those things mm. on, enforce them, <laughs> right. uh, and, and it'll do miles to save you from this. And and then also uh, some user education stuff around phishing, some really basic, I know some folks are probably rolling their eyes, security 101 things are where these these problems emanate from. As far as something to tell someone that we're, that has not yet been affected by this. Have a plan, and and in that plan assign specific roles and responsibilities, like you would a normal disaster recovery plan. Assume that at some day this may happen, and you need to have a, a set of steps. Th- that plan should typically include at least having a corporate counsel on retainer, an IR firm on retainer, and uh, you know, obviously notifying uh, law enforcement on the front end. I always recommend that you do that. So those are the those are the main things.
2: All right, Joe, what do you think? I'm always glad to have Curtis on, on the show. Yeah, Uh, Interesting. Last time he was on, we were talking about a a bromium report. And today while he's on again, I mentioned another HP bromium report, (laughs) right? It's weird. I don't know. (laughs) The vectors are account takeover and phishing. That's how these ransomware attacks happen is they take over your account, your username and password, or through some kind of phishing email. Large companies, there are a lot of people involved in the process. That was interesting. I thought In small companies, it's usually, like you said, just the IT manager and maybe the owner of the company trying to do this. And, you know, that's never going to be as helpful as having a lot of heads on this, right? Mm. You're entering into a deal with a dishonorable person once you start working with a ransomware attacker. But I find it interesting that he says only about 1% of these deals don't honor the payment. So Mm. most of these guys, 99% of them, when you send the money, they will unlock your computers. And right. we, we've talked about this before. The reason they do that is because if they stop doing it, nobody will pay ransom.
1: Right. 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 It's in their best interest to to handle this in a professional manner.
2: Yeah. And that's that's my next point. It's a psychological uh, event, whatever it is. And being professional helps when you're talking with these guys. You take the wrong approach with these people, and it can be really detrimental to the process.
1: Yeah. It's interesting to me how uh, he pointed out that the ransomers seem to breathe a sigh of relief when they know they have a professional on the line. Yeah, you know, that was like, <laughs> that was interesting
2: as well. Because <laughs> right, right. immediately they know they're going to get paid.
1: Right, right. right. They're, they're and it's get paid being it. taken seriously. Yeah. yeah.
2: And what is also interesting is that Curtis can usually talk them down to a fraction of what they originally asked for. Mm-hmm. In, in mm-hmm. terms of negotiating, he he negotiates them down to about ten percent. He said,
1: "Yeah, that's still amazing. a good payday."
2: That, but, yeah, uh, it, yeah. If you ask for a million dollars and you get off with a hundred thousand dollars, that's still pretty good. Not um, a
1: bad day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's
2: <laughs> especially if you. Yeah, that's a that's a good day in America. I mean, <laughs> where, where we have <laughs> right. a pretty high uh, median income. It's uh, yeah. It's a really good day if you're in uh, like Nigeria or something. Earlier, I mentioned that there were large organizations and small organizations that get hit by ransomware, and then there are large organizations and smaller ones that are running these operations, right? When you're talking about a larger organization, that's a more defined professional organization than the smaller organization, even in the criminal world, right? So if you're talking to one guy, Curtis may get farther in the negotiations with the one guy with the sole proprietorship of the criminal ransomware enterprise and they will with a large conglomerate criminal enterprise. Mm, I find mm-hmm. that to be that's an interesting observation. And Curtis makes a good point here that civil penalties are not really significant when you're talking about the end of your business. If you're if you're a small to medium-sized business and you're looking at you know, having to pay $50,000 in ransom and somebody's going to slap another $5,000 fine on you for paying it, but you'll pay the extra $5,000. It's it's okay because otherwise if you don't, your your livelihood's gone. Right now, there there are other ways we've talked about in the past, and that we broached the subject. We said it's time to discuss this, and I haven't endorsed this or, or believed or or said definitively that this is what we should do. But if we outlawed the payment of ransomware, I think the problem might go away. Mm-hmm. But I'm not ready to wholeheartedly endorse that concept.
1: Yeah, there'd be a lot of pain in in the in between time.
2: There you would know. be. <laughs> there would be significant pain, and and a, some businesses would close. They that would be the end of them.
1: Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, uh, once again, our thanks to Curtis Minder for joining us. Always a pleasure to talk to him. Always interesting things that he shares. So we appreciate him taking the time.